This is iUniverse Radio, brought to you by iUniverse, the leading book marketing, editorial services, and supported self-publishing company. iUniverse Radio is your opportunity to hear firsthand from authors about their new books. It's an in-depth discussion about the author's passion about the development of his or her story in their own words. It's an inside look into the characters and the plot and how the story all came together. Here is iUniverse Radio with host Steve Jorgensen. The title of the book, All About Michael, A Vietnam Revelation. And the authors are Michael Burke and his sister, Bernadette M. Burke, and they join us now on iUniverse Radio. Hello, Bernadette. Hello. Great to have you with us, and hello, Michael. How you doing? Great to have you, and we honor you, Michael, uh, for your service uh, during the Vietnam War and your service today trying to help veterans. So thank you from the bottom of our hearts. Thank you. Now, first of all, Bernadette, we'll start with you. What was the, I mean, when did this all come together? You know, this is about really a dedication to your brother. Tell us why you felt so strongly to, to uh, help Michael write this book. It definitely is a dedication to my brother, whom I'm very proud of, uh, for his dedication to helping other uh, veterans uh, and soldiers of war. Um, he started opening up to me about uh, a little over 10 years ago. I was actually in my classroom, and I had asked him what was a good uh, movie to, to share with my students that could um, show the realities of war since I was teaching The Red Badge of Courage by uh, Stephen Crane. And from that point on, my brother started little by little opening up to me about what happened in Vietnam. Prior to that, he never had talked about it. So I kept telling him that I wanted to share his story because it was such a powerful story as the years went on. And the catalyst to get the project started was an interview that he had in Chapter 10 of the book with um, a student of a college. Her name is Natalie Paloma. He sent that interview to me, and when I read it, I said, I have to write the book. It was very emotional for me to read it, but that was, that began the project. Well, Michael, you are the receiver of many, many decorations. Why didn't you say very much about that? Vietnam wasn't a popular war, okay? It was by no means a popular war, and no one ever talked about it. I came home, it's like I said, you know, I got sped on at the airport. Um, it was just something that you didn't talk about when you went to join the VFW. They said Vietnam was in a war, it was a conflict, and just on and on and on. One of the things about me, and I was denied five jobs because of what happened to me in Vietnam, I didn't get deeded. Um, maybe I was a little bitter a little bit because I felt as though each agency could have found a job for me, but I kept moving on. And what it did was it drives me to go back to college, okay? I had a family, and I just put Vietnam so far behind me until you wouldn't believe. I focused on my family. Uh, my kids didn't even know I was in Vietnam until they was around 10, 11 years old. And what sparked it one day was when my daughter said, Daddy, I have to go to school and do a show and tell. I said, okay, yeah, take my Purple Heart. You know, and she took my purple heart and the kids loved it. And that's what really spawned everything to a degree um, that, 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 that I started a little bit talking about Vietnam. I was involved. I got involved with the VFW and we had students call there and they said, 
yo, we want to talk to a Vietnam veteran. So what I did was I called other posts. I called uh, members at my post. Nobody wanted to do it. Nobody wanted to talk to them about it. Being that I felt as though, hey, these young people have a right to know, I said I would do it. And that's what really sparked me, like my sister said, and I started talking to my sister um, about talking about Vietnam. I'd done seminars at Marist College. I'd done seminars at Vassar College. I talked to kids at, at Dutchess Community College. So it just started bringing, bringing things out of me. And when I, when, in, in Chapter 10 in the book, when the young lady did the interview, I mean, she dug deep. She went inside my soul, and I had, you know, she pulled things out of me, that, and I'm glad that she kept it in a question-answer format. You know, it was like, whoa. Then, of course, then when I started talking to my sister, it was like a, um, a never-ending conversation about Vietnam. And that was like therapy for me, okay, because it's not just my story. It's my comrade's story who did not make it back home. It's my comrade's stories who did make it back home. And I had two young ladies whose husband was in Vietnam, and they said to me, Michael, I'm so happy you wrote that book. I understand my husband a lot better now because being a Vietnam veteran, we did not talk about it. Well, Bernadette, when you first realized all these commendations, all these decorations, uh, what did that do to you? Well, I felt sad at first because uh, I realized my brother in my heart and in my mind is a hero but he didn't get those recognitions until later on, uh, at least so the public could understand that. And our family never knew, uh, because we did have another tragedy. But uh, most of it, uh, as Michael said, has to do with him just closing up about it and not wanting to talk about it. So you knew not to breach the subject. Um, but when he, when he was pinned all of his medals, I mean, this has been a very emotional time for me in Project because... Not only uh, have I been here in the present with my brother, but I had to go back to the past. When I was an 18-year-old girl in high school, and my brother did get wounded, and I did visit him in Walter Reed Hospital. Um, and what happened to our family at that time? We were one family before that happened, and we became another one. And um, I am very proud of him, and it just um, escalates the level of, of pride that I have in my brother. And what happened in 2011 on June 14th? I got inducted to the Veterans Hall Hall of Fame up in Albany, New York, by um, Senator Salon. My name was submitted by the director, Nelson Rivera, of Veterans Affairs here in Poughkeepsie, because I'm so involved with the veterans. I do a lot. I was post commander for four years. Uh, I rose to the prestigious position of, of um, uh, District 2 commander. Uh, I'm heavily involved on a state level, and for any of you veterans out there who are able to join the VFW, do it. And we need you now, especially you female veterans, too. Michael, take us back. Take us back to, I guess, the day when you almost lost your life. What happened? Um, we went, and this is in the book, too. We went out on a search-and-destroy mission, right? The only thing I wanted to do in Vietnam was do my time and come home. I was put in a very peculiar position because our sergeant had just got malaria. He had to go back to the rear. They took somebody, put him here. He came to me and said, Mike, you got to be a platoon leader. I said, I don't want to do it. 
They came to me about two or three times, and I said, I don't want to do it. Finally, they came to me and said, Mike, well, you've been in country for six months. If you want somebody here who's been here two months telling you what to do, I just shut them down. I said, okay, you got it. You got it. And I'm the type of person I wouldn't tell or ask somebody to do something that I wouldn't do. Okay, so it's like we, got a, we, we, we went out on a, a, a search and destroy mission. I walked point. Okay, uh, and we found a cache of weapons, rice, everything. You know, things were hot, you know, and they shot a, a RPG, which is a, a rocket to pole grenade, and it just it blew up in my face. And from there, you know, within 15, 20 minutes, they had me back to a hospital in, in, in Vietnam because we was in Cambodia. President Nixon had given the order to go in Cambodia, and the first day of CAV was the first one there. And, uh, you know, ever since that time, the, the, the worst part for me was, number one, getting hurt. Number two is not being out there with my men, all right? And everybody, everybody in my squad got hurt as well. I just got it the worst. Bernadette, I, when you first saw your brother at the hospital, uh, boy, that must have been tough to see him in his condition. It definitely was, uh, Steve. Um, I, I tried not to look in his eyes because I didn't want him to see the horror in my face uh, because looking at him um, all swollen as he was um, and patched up and, I mean, from top to, to from top of his head to the bottom of his feet, um, I just didn't want him to know my thoughts. I was afraid of him. Um, I was afraid of what had happened to him. Um, and I didn't know what to do as a girl. You know, I was still a child, basically, being um, 18 years old. Um, so I, I tried to just fake it and uh, be polite and be myself, but I know I didn't come across very well. Uh, but the main thing that I kept holding on to was the fact that my brother was alive and of that uh, fact I was very, very uh, thankful. Michael, war is obviously a terrible, terrible, tragic uh, thing. Um, unless you've been there, it's difficult to identify with folks like you who you know, had something blow up in your face and, and it almost killed you and have probably saw death around you uh, from time to time, of good friends uh, giving their lives for their country. How do you take that experience and turn it into a positive in your life? I mean, that's something that you've done. Okay, the way, the way, the way I turned it into a positive, Steve, was number one, I felt as though if I made it through Vietnam, I can make it through anything in life. That was my, that was my uh, 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 strength, okay? Raising a family, my kids helped me through the bad times. Um, my wife helped me through uh, times that, 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 you know, it was like I, I, I went for therapy for PTSD. The doctor said to me, what did you do before all this time? I said, I talked to my wife. He told me that's not therapy. He never asked me why, because if he had asked me why, the therapy was, I wake up 2 or 3 o'clock in the morning, I'm able to talk to my wife, and she's able to sit there and listen to me, okay? When I go to PTSD, okay, Mike, the 41 minutes is up, okay? So it was family, and that's one thing I don't understand about the Iraq, Afghanistan. I'm trying to understand it, because a lot of these guys have families now, and my family gives me, gave me the strength. Okay, to make it, to be there for my kids, to be there for my wife, you know, um, and so many, they have learned so many things from 
uh, the Vietnam veteran, until they have so many programs in place right now, okay, for these Iraq, Afghanistan veterans, as well as their families. So these guys are coming back here, they're committing suicide, and if they read my book, you know, they will understand. And it's not that, that if I did it, you could do it. It's that I did it, and you could do it if you want to do it. So to me, family, my family played a, a, a big part of me um, being successful, uh, being able to talk about Vietnam, like I said, my sister. And one thing, um, my parents, they, I, I wish they was here to see this because, you know, as, as parents are, they say, oh, my son made it back home and they didn't want to know nothing, blah, blah, blah. And at the time, we just didn't talk about it. So to me, family plays a very, very big part in, in, in a veteran recuperating, a veteran getting back to somewhat of normalcy, to a veteran being able to uh, fit into society, the economy. And I do believe, I sincerely believe that every veteran, every corporation out there should hire a veteran. You know, and, and there's nothing like a veteran taking care of a veteran because we know how to do it. I have a good friend who is Major General, U.S. Army, retired. Uh, he told me recently the way you judge a nation is how they treat their elderly and how they treat their veterans. How does this nation treat the veterans today? I think that they treat the veterans very well. And we, I'm not going to say I, we as Vietnam veterans, we open our arms to them. We, as Vietnam veterans, we go to the uh, send-offs. We go to the uh, ribbings, uh, yellow ribbons when they're coming home. When they go, we are there. We are there to support them and their families. We have more programs now uh, financially. I know my, my post alone, we had an uh, Afghanistan, uh, Iraq veteran who's in Iraq. His wife needed a well dug. What we did, we donated $500, and we called every other post in Dutchess County to contribute to them so that she didn't have to uh, uh, spend a dime. When he came back, he thanked us. This is what we do. This is what veterans do. We take care of our own. Well, we really appreciate you spending time with us, Michael. And again, we thank you for your service and are, are grateful for all veterans who are willing to lay their lives on the line like you did. And of course, today with our many veterans who are serving many tours of duty over in uh, Afghanistan and have been in Iraq. Uh, before we leave, Bernadette, tell us how to get this book. Okay, um, they can go to uh, a website, uh, actually email, uh, allaboutmichael underscore in between Vietnam. Allaboutmichael underscore in between it, Vietnam. And um, also there's a, a, a blog, and Michael will tell you that, that blog uh, information in a moment, but they can send an email to that. That's our LLC business website. And we will uh, see that they that we can order the book for them and let them know what's available. More importantly, Michael has um, a website uh, with a blog and order forms and information uh, about uh, the, the book and his life as well. And Michael, can you tell them what that is? Right. You could go to uh, a blogspot. It's called See All About Michael, 
S E E A L L A D O U T Michael dot blogspot dot com. Okay, and my my sister was right when she said um, all about Michael underscore Vietnam, but it's at AOL dot com. Well, thank okay, you very. So you have two places that that the book can be ordered right now due to Sandy Storm, uh, Hurricane Sandy, or the storm we had here. They are in the process of putting my um, my blog spot back together with the order form and everything. So if they go there and the order form is not there, it will be there. Well, thanks again for being with us on iUniverse Radio. Thank you, Bernadette and Burke. Thank you, Steve, for and, having us. And again, thank you, Michael Burke. Thank you so much. Thank you. You're listening to iUniverse Radio. We'll be back right after these messages. Hi, everybody. This is Pete Six of Beatles and Beyond. Why don't we all come together and hear some of the tracks off the latest Beatles release on this radio station. Why don't you look up the schedules on this radio station and join me and Beatles listeners everywhere to hear these latest releases from the Beatles on Beatles and Beyond with Pete Dix. Evermore, people have the means to live, but no meaning to live for. These are the words of Dr. Victor Frankel. The inspiration for the movie, Victor and I. That's V-I-K-T-O-R and I, movie.com. And TalkSense Radio, The Meaning Connection. With host, Mary Similuka. And frequent contributor, Alexander Vesley. Friday afternoons at 3, 2 central on toginet.com. More and more people today are discarding their quest for money, possessions, and things. And are instead beginning a serious quest to find meaning in life. Until now, these discussions were historically in the hands of priests, ministers, and scribes, then to philosophers, psychiatrists, and psychologists. Now, these deep discussions are where they should be, in the hands of individuals, on the air, with you. Talk Sense Radio, The Meaning Connection, with your host, Mary Similuka, and frequent contributor, Alexander Vesley. Friday afternoons at 3, 2 central, on toginet.com. Welcome back to iUniverse Radio with host Steve Jorgensen. The title of the book, A Marked Heart. And the author is David George Ball, and David joins us now on iUniverse Radio. Hello, David. Hi, Steve. Good to be with you. Well, great to have you with us. Uh, This is going to be an inspiring kind of uh, interview because of your great accomplishments and also your meeting with Dr. Martin Luther King, uh, uh, many years ago, and how that changed your life, and and we want to certainly end up talking about how you champion the 401k plan. You're kind of the father of that. So let's go back, though. Let's go all the way back to England in your early days, and that the impact that growing up in wartime England had upon you, David. 
Well, uh, Steve, I was three years old when World War II started, so I have no memories of before the war, but from, until I was nine, we were being bombed by German planes, and strangely enough, I thought war was normal. Wow. Um, uh, but but uh, my dad was a Baptist minister, my mom was a missionary before she married my dad. And when I was 17, I graduated from grammar school in Gloucester, England. I decided I wanted to be a Baptist minister like my dad. So I came to America to go to a school that he had attended called the Moody Bible Institute in Chicago to take the pastor's course. And uh, I had a good time there. The other students were training to be missionaries and other forms of Christian service. But when I was been there two years, I got a scholarship to Yale for someone intending to enter the Christian ministry. And since I wanted to be a minister, Baptist minister, that got me to Yale. However, when I arrived at Yale State, uh, the students seemed different from the students at Moody. They were more interested in drinking beer and having a party. Uh, and that isn't uh, the way you were looking at life. Yeah. Well, uh, I decided, I, I was a Baptist, and I decided I had to do something. So what I did, I started a lecture series, and the first person I invited was a Baptist minister from Montgomery, Alabama, who just organized a boycott of segregated buses. Hmm. And uh, he agreed to come to Yale in the fall of 1958. And about that time, he published his own book. He went to Harlem in New York City to try and sell his book. And while he was sitting at a little table just trying to sell his book, a woman stabbed him in the chest with a letter opener just a quarter of an inch from his heart. Wow. He almost died. They rushed into Harlem Hospital. He's in hospital a long time. I managed to get a note to him to tell him I was sorry. And uh, to my surprise and pleasure, I got a note back. He said, as soon as I get out of the hospital and back to Montgomery, I'll try and reschedule my visit to Yale, which he did for January 1959. A few days before he finally arrived, I was very surprised to get a letter from his secretary. She had written a note to me. I was just a student, but she wrote to me because I was going to be his host for three days. And she said, because of his hospitalization, Dr. King needs an hour's bed rest every afternoon. In other words, it's going to be my job to make sure that Martin Luther King took a nap every afternoon. <laughs> <laughs> I was uh, a, a little naive, I would say, at that time. Uh, I, I reserved Wolsey Hall for him to speak. Wolsey Hall is the largest auditorium at Yale. And uh, as it got closer to the time for the lecture, I began to wonder if perhaps I'd made a mistake. After all, I was an immigrant, I was a Baptist, and I didn't even drink beer. There's no way the other guys were going to come to something that I put on. But by the grace of God, there wasn't much going on at Yale, and 2,000 students showed up. 2,000? Standing, standing in the aisles and standing in the windows. And Martin Luther King didn't give a lecture, he preached a sermon. And he was completely he was, unknown at that time, completely unknown. He was, he was very much unknown. He was becoming, having published that book, he was becoming well-known, but he was not a famous person like we think of him today. Um, he never would have given me three days of his time <laughs> later on in his life. But um, he preached a brilliant uh, sermon about uh, uh, achieving integration with legal and moral force without violence. When he said without violence, he sounded like an Old Testament prophet. Everybody stood up and cheered. I stood up and cheered, too. I heard a call. I didn't fully understand, 
but I wanted to do something for America, even though I was only an immigrant. So and you really, and, and at that moment, you really didn't know what that was. You didn't know what your no. calling was, because here, you, all the time, you thought you were going to become a minister. Yeah, exactly. It was a turning point. The next day, I took him out to meet the dean at the Divinity School, and as we're walking back to campus, I remember that letter. I said, Dr. King, would you like to take a nap this afternoon? And he replied, I don't want to take a nap. I never expected to celebrate my 30th birthday at Yale. I didn't even know it was his birthday. <laughs> Steve, I rushed out. I bought a birthday cake. <laughs> I got my student committee together, and we marched in, and we sang happy birthday. Now, that was a happy day for Martin Luther King, but more importantly, it was a turning point in my life because the day after he left, I changed my major to political science. Steve, I never became a minister. But when I graduated from Yale, I vowed to try and help make the world a better place, like Martin Luther King. At first, I thought my calling was civil rights. I became a lawyer. I worked on Wall Street. But it turned out my calling wasn't civil rights. It actually took me a long time to discover my calling. At that point in my life, when I was still uh, sort of wondering what I could do in civil rights, tragedy entered my life. My Beloved wife died, leaving me with three small children. I, I was depressed and, and, and devastated. My parents came to help me take care of them, but it took me a long time to reestablish my career. And I lo no longer thought about civil rights. But I got a job with a company, a metals and big metals and mining company called Amex, and I was appointed the pension committee. And I became concerned about another kind of national problem, very different from civil rights. It was about employees who changed jobs and lost their pension benefits. There needed to be a kind of pension that was portable. And the vision inspired by Martin Luther King came back to life. Instead of civil rights, my calling was to portable pensions. I championed the first 401k plan. Never heard it talk. Never heard that. Never heard the four hundred one k called it that way before. You know, a portable pension. Well, that's exactly what it was. You could t when you, you unlike the other old, the old fashioned traditional divine benefit plan, you had to stay a long number of years in order to death. But the but the four hundred one k plan it was yours the moment you put you put the money in it. You, you could never lose it. You could take it with you as you went from job to job. And uh, even if you retired, or, and if you died, you could leave it to your heirs. It was always yours. And so it was a fundamental change in the nature of the pension system in America. At first, I thought other companies would copy what we did in Amex. You know, it was popular. Our employees loved it. But other companies hesitated to follow because of the 401k plan gave workers control of their investments. The managements of other companies were terrified of giving control to workers because if they made a bad decision, they might become disgruntled and sue management. So there needed to be a federal regulation to protect both the worker and the management. And if the worker truly got control, then fair enough, management should be off the hook. Well, in 1989, President George H.W. Bush nominated me as Assistant Secretary of Labor for Pensions. And my mission 
was to get out a roadmap to open up 401k plans for workers who otherwise would have nothing. It took me three years because the federal government moved slowly. But two weeks before President Bush lost his bid for re-election to Governor Clinton, that regulation was published in the Federal Register under my signature. And today, Steve, 70 million workers have 401k plans. And it's thanks to Martin Luther King who steered me towards public service. Well, that's quite a story. As you look back on putting together this revolutionary idea for pensions, uh, what was some of the biggest roadblocks? I mean, how, I'm sure it wasn't just smooth sailing. How did you keep going? Well, uh, of course, the first roadblock was to get it uh, uh, adopted in the company where I was. I was corporate secretary. I wasn't chief executive officer, but I managed to persuade my the chief executive of my company and also the board of directors of my company that this was uh, a good thing for employees. I think the board of directors liked it because he, they thought it was helping employees, workers, to help themselves. So having got it through that company, then the question was to get other companies to follow, and that was much more difficult. Indeed, uh, as I said, other companies hesitated, and it really wasn't until President Bush uh, got involved that the uh, plan really took off. So as you point out in your uh, in your book, this is really uh, quite a message here with this story. As you say, there is nothing in the world more powerful than an idea whose time has come. You were just there at the right time, but you you were the messenger, and I guess uh, you were also the energy behind it all. Yes, I, I, the, the, the workplace was changing. People, after World War II, people stayed with one company for 35 years. They got to go watch in a pension and retired. But as time went by, people, young people started to change jobs just to get a higher salary. And they didn't pay any attention to the fact that if they changed jobs, they lost their pension benefits. So the world was changing. This was something that was happening in the workplace. I was fortunate enough to be God's uh, messenger in that situation, but it was the workplace that was changing. Well, as you look back on your life, uh, you understand that we might not be able to change the world, but you can change, as you point out, just that part of the world where we can make a difference, and that's kind of the way you found your calling. Well, that, that I got that uh, understood that very clearly from Martin Luther King because. He, did, he didn't try to change the world. He just tried to change that world that he was involved in in Montgomery, Alabama. And eventually it did have much larger implications, but he didn't try to, uh, to do a massive change. He just tried to change the world where he lived, and gradually he was able to expand it. Uh, and and, it, and it, it, took, it had momentum of its own, but that's right. Uh, you, you need to be realistic in the beginning and just deal with something that you're familiar with and where you can really make a difference. Now, you also uh, talk about being fired, uh, and where did you turn for help when you were fired? Tell us that story. Well, uh, it, there, there are several points in my story, Steve, where, uh, just like all of us, we have adversity. It, my, my problem was I, I became the victim of... Uh, corporate politics, and uh, uh, 
at, at that point, uh, as as I had just when my wife had died, I I did know where to turn in a crisis because I'd learned how to pray. My father had taught me when I was six or seven years old how to pray. I could talk to God. I found it very easy. And I, I knew uh, there were wonderful stories in the Bible, like the story of Job. Think of all the awful things that happened to Job. And I somehow sometimes think felt like I was like Job, all these terrible things happening to me. But every time something more terrible happened to Job, he always replied, I know that my Redeemer lived it. He affirmed his faith in God. And that example, I felt, was very powerful to me when I was both when my wife died and when uh, I had adversity at work. Well, I was able to talk to God about it, and he got me through. Well, that's always the best source. If Many people don't seem to go there, but those of us who do, he's always there, and he, of course, has the greatest power. It's, it's a great statement by Elizabeth Dole, U.S. Senator, and she was also Secretary of Labor. She says this about your book, an inspiring tale of how one person can truly make a difference. I think that sometimes we don't understand how just one of us, just, just an individual can, can make such a difference. Uh, we often feel like we don't have very much influence often in life. Well, yes, I think she summed, I, I, she summed it up very well. She was a very uh, good boss. She was my boss at the Department of Labor, and uh, she was very supportive, and I was very grateful for the opportunity to work with her. How did you feel when President Bush lost his bid for re-election? Well, uh, I hope for four more years, just like <laughs> President Bush did. But I should tell you, Steve, I sent a copy of my book to President Bush just recently, and uh, I, I really didn't expect him to, to uh, uh, write back to me, but he did. He sent me a very moving letter, and what he said was it really harked back to that vow that I'd made when I graduated from Yale. He said, you have indeed helped make the world a better place. Well, and, and as you explain, you really believe your life embodies the American dream. That dream is still there, isn't it? Absolutely, Steve. Well, we appreciate you being with us so much, David. Uh, the title of David's book, A Marked Heart, David George Ball. David, tell us how to get your book. Well, you can get it on uh, Amazon or uh, Barnes & Noble. Dot com, uh, uh, either place. Amazon is, is usually pretty swift in getting the book to you. Well, thank you so much for being with us, David. Thank you, David. It's been a pleasure. You're listening to iUniverse Radio. We'll be back right after these messages. Okay, we will. We're going to teach you how to tell your money where to go. It's Intelligent Investing with Pam Otten on Toginet. Learn how to be a savvy investor from someone who has your best interest at heart. Pam Otten is a financial advisor who loves to help successful business owners and entrepreneurs understand the mysteries of the investment world. And she's not afraid to share that knowledge. Pam is an unashamed Christian and qualified kingdom advisor, which means she's trained and committed to integrating biblical principles into her financial advice. Pam believes investing isn't rocket science. 
This is the financial advisor who's in your corner and truly understands and cares about you and helping you achieve your goals. Securities and advisory services are offered through LPL Financial, member FINRA SIPC. It's Intelligent Investing with Pam Otten on Toginet. Connect with Juliana and connect with what lies beneath. Friday afternoons at 4, 3 central on toginet.com. Juliana is a marriage, family, and child therapist who wants people to connect. Connect with what lies beneath, those truths and answers. And through her counseling practice, she has helped others find their personal power and fulfill their dreams. And she wants to do the same for you. Here on Connect with Juliana. Through intimate discussions, intriguing subject matters, and the expertise of her guests. For more on the show and Juliana, check out her webpage. Connect with Juliana in media.com. Juliana will cover it all. Nothing is off limits. She wants to know what matters to you. Make the connection. Tune into Toginet to connect with Juliana to find out the facts that could be hidden beneath the surface. Connect with Juliana on Toginet to make a quality connection in your life. Friday afternoons at 4, 3 central on toginet.com. Welcome back to iUniverse Radio with host Steve Jorgensen. The title of the book, Beer in the Bilges, and the authors, Alan Borum, Peter Jinks, and Bob Rossiter. And Alan and Peter and Bob join us now on iUniverse Radio. Hello, gentlemen. Good day, Steve. Hey, good day. Well, great to have you with us. Alan is in Vancouver. Bob is in Arkansas. Peter is on Australia and Sydney, Australia. And of course, you I'm got here, it. I'm here in the great state of Texas. So we're just got the world covered, don't we? <laughs> or the important part of the world, anyway. Yep, for well, sure, Mike. Well, great to have you again with us. Beer in the Bilges, as you say, takes a first-hand look at the real South Pacific as it was in the 1980s, uh, remote, beautiful, and a home and to a variety of curious characters, and you met them all. And whether you're a sailor or an armchair adventurer, you will love the humor and amazing tales that these three men have to tell. So this is kind of your Lack of a better word, your escapades across the South Pacific. Is that what it is? <laughs> you got it. That's pretty close. <laughs> That's pretty close. Okay. Well, first of all, real quick, Alan, we'll start with you. Tell us a little bit about yourself. Steve, I'm, uh, I'm a gent- gentleman retired now from my regular work. I worked uh, for quite a while uh, for the Canadian government doing fisheries and environment type work, and now I make my, uh, my living as a travel writer. Bob. Well, well, I started out in New Zealand. I didn't, you know, I wasn't born in Arkansas, thank goodness. But um, <laughs> I did a lot of sailing in New Zealand, you know, coastal sailing, then got into uh, delivery trips up into the South Pacific, and then everything sort of expanded from there. Wound up living in uh, Los Angeles for a while, then moved to Hawaii and used that as a base of operations, and from there sailed off to Japan, Alaska. Um, the Americas, uh, New Zealand. So it was um, it was quite an interesting time. And Peter, tell us about yourself. Yeah, well, I live in Sydney, Australia. Um, I run a high end um, real estate company. Um, I spent about twenty years of my life travelling around the world, um, living in different countries. Um, I spent a lot of time living in Iceland and Bolivia, and um, lived in the US and uh, the Cook Islands in the South Pacific. 
uh, married with a couple of kids, uh, still travel a lot, and uh, always looking for another adventure. I like diving, sailing, and uh, flying. Um, and I like to think I'm probably about 30-something. You might have to multiply by two, though. <laughs> <laughs> well, Alan, tell us just why you wrote this book. This book uh, is about your... You're sailing across the South Pacific, and this is the first, I guess, of a series of them, but why did you guys write this book? Yeah, Steve, you know, um, these events did take uh, place quite a long time ago in the early 1980s, and uh, we, as you say, uh, had some escapades together, and uh, following that, we all sort of went our own ways, but we always stayed in touch, you know, we became very good friends, and... uh, from time to time, two of us would get together. I'd get together with Bob or Peter and Bob would get together. But we didn't really have the opportunity for just any kind of a kind of a reunion until 1999. And uh, we met at the uh, one of our favorite haunts, the Harbor Pub and Pizza, overlooking the Alawai Harbor in Waikiki. And caught up, you know, we spent, uh, there was a little beer drunk that night. We uh, all had a chance to catch up on what we were all doing. And, you know... Stories always turn back to the good old days, and and we talked about how lucky we had been to sail through the South Pacific Islands and and to have those experiences when they were relatively unspoiled. You know, we we marveled at the the amazing characters we encountered along the way. You know, there were people like Sharkbite Charlie and Rosie, the 300-pound dancer, and Gunter, the mysterious chef from South America. You know, these were people that we found so unusual, we couldn't have hoped to invent them. And, you know, we decided there and then that we really wanted to write this book to share these sailing experiences and these amazing characters that we met along the way uh, with, for people that would never have the opportunity to venture out there on their own to see them for, their, for themselves. Bob, why did you dedicate the book to Dixie Carter? Well, Dixie was the obvious choice. She was, as you know, uh, actress. She was also an author. She'd never been on the ocean. She'd never been on a boat, but she wanted to sail the South Pacific. So she became a crew member. We even gave her the title Bosun, you know, make her feel kind of settled down. She didn't get any special treatment when she was on board. She took a turn at cooking. She got up at 3 a.m. to stand watch. And she carried all of her duties extremely well. Now, for her to come from, like, a socialite, or a celebrity really, a celebrity from Beverly Hills to the center of the Pacific Ocean took a lot of guts. She had a dream, and she made it come true. She really was an inspiration. Well, Peter, this was quite a journey. It was some 1,500 miles. Uh, had to, you, you had to turn back because of a huge storm. Uh, during that time, were you ever scared? Um. No, usually scared afterwards. Um, <laughs> I've been in a lot of dangerous situations. Um, you know, I've been trapped up in mountains up in South America and nearly died up there. Um, you find when you're in a very tight situation, um, you know, you um, you focus totally uh, on survival and you don't uh, have time to be scared um, because... Um, if you do, um, well, you're not doing your job. Um, so you're just into survival and, um, you know, you've also got to have a little bit of humour 
and you've got to rely on each other to survive. But uh, no, not really scared. Sometimes on reflection, uh, after the event, um, you think, geez, God, boy, I'm glad to get out of that. Um, and you get a little bit scared after the, after the fact. But at the time, you just focus on, uh, on survival and, um, you know, do whatever needs to be done to survive. Alan, what would you say, uh, how did these events uh, described in the book change your lives? Yeah, you know, you know it's, there's the quote on the front of the book we have that says, um, these stories are about real people doing real things. You know, these are the kind of things most people only dream about doing. Um, this isn't reality TV, like it's popular these days. You know, where, when we're born, you, you grow up and have dreams to do things you want to accomplish. Um, but along the way, for some reason, by the time we get to be adults, a lot of people lose their ability to dream. Uh, I think the reason that the three of us get along so well and had similar experiences that changed our lives is that we all understand life isn't a dress rehearsal. We all have dreams, and the three of us all take risks, and we, we learn to push the boundaries to make life what we want it to be rather than accepting it for what it is. It's like writing this book. None of us ever thought we couldn't do it. We just decided and we went ahead and did it. And of course, as you said, and we're writing another one. So the stories in Beer and the Bilges describe some of those experiences we had that do change your life. You know, so when we found ourselves in tight situations, you know, for myself, I was surprised to discover just how far I could push past what I thought were my limits. We all did from one time or another. And you see, Steve, when you overcome challenges like that, you find out what else is possible. And that brings the realization that you can make a huge difference, and it lets you take control of your future. Well, we've all seen movies of the high seas. You see, uh, you know, folks like you out sailing. Of course, here, here's a 55-foot uh, vessel out uh, on the high seas. Uh, Bob, uh, I'm sure you've been in a big storm before. Oh, yes, I've been in several. I mean, that's almost, I mean, it's inevitable. If you're out there long enough and often enough, you are going to meet one of these things. Now, most of this early book was in the days before we had all these electronic gizmos that we can, like, predict or see ahead. So what you had to do was do it the way they did 200 years before you. You had to learn to read the weather what the sea and what the sky was telling you. I mean, nothing ever just happens out there. There's a story, and it's up there for you to see. The trick is learning to read it. I mean, if you can't, there's a good chance no one will ever see you again. Now, this is a process that you don't learn, like, overnight. I took every opportunity I could when I was sailing around there I'd meet the old Polynesian sea captains and talk to them. I'd talk to people like the Frenchman, Bernard Matissier, who sailed one and a half times around the world by himself. I mean, these people, these people have lived on the ocean, and they know what it's about. Nothing just happens out there, but, I mean, it, it sure. is important, you know, to, to, learn, to learn what the ocean was telling you. Um, you know, I'm sure there's a bunch of people that bought a boat, jumped on it, and sailed off, and, you know, never been seen again. So uh, that's pretty well, you know, pretty well the basics of it. Peter, what was your favorite destination? Um, on this trip, um, probably northern Tonga, an island called Vavau. Um, 
it's just such a beautiful um, topography-wise. It, it, it's mm-hmm. stunning. Um, I love the simplistic lifestyle of the people. Um, there's a huge abundance of food. Um, the land's very fertile. There's lots of fish in the lagoons. The people are extremely happy. They smile very easily. Uh, when you walk down the street, everyone seems to be smiling. Uh, if you walk down the street in the Western world, you've got to look hard sometimes to find somebody who is smiling. Um, you know, I love the coral reefs, the remote sandy beaches, and just the very relaxed way of life. Uh, they're very wonderful people who will open their homes to you. They have very little, but what they have, they're willing to share. And, of course, the warm weather is 12 months a year, which is fantastic. Alan, what would you say you like the most about offshore sailing? Uh, yeah, well, it's uh, it's brilliant, you know. When when you're offshore, you've got, it's kind of hard to describe. You're independent and you're self-reliant. There's kind of a special feeling that you have. It, it's freedom when you're sailing on the ocean. There's kind of a peacefulness about it. Um, it's you could probably say it, it's like there's a harmony uh, when things are going right, and uh, and of course saying that there's always a sense of adventure that goes along with it. Well, it's difficult to most of us to understand when you go on such a long journey uh, on the open seas, uh, Peter. What's it like living on a boat at sea? Well, it's something you, when you first, uh, if you haven't done much sailing before, you find that uh, you live in a very confined space. Uh, once you get used to it, it just seems normal. Um, you, When you're actually sailing at sea, um, there's plenty of things to do. You usually do uh, uh, four hours on a watch, and then you might get four hours off. So you do four hours on, four hours off, around the 24-hour clock. Um, if there's a sail change needed in the middle of the night, all the hands come on deck. Um, quite often, you um, you know, if you're in heavy weather and storms, uh, everything's damp in the boat. If you're anchored in a lagoon, it's a whole different story. Living on a boat, you um, you know, the boat's not bouncing around anymore. You get up in the morning, grab your hand spear, fall over the side, spear a couple of fish come back on board, throw them in the fry pan and uh, cook up breakfast and then there's always maintenance to be done on a boat. It's, it's, it's just a wonderful way uh, of life and as Alan said, it just the feeling of freedom is fantastic. And sailing at night, Bob, uh, that's, uh, you know, I guess... That's kind of spooky. Yeah, I was going to say, that must be. Uh, okay, sailing at night, well... I've got some funny stories about that, but sailing at night, I mean, the boat never stops. You don't, uh, you don't say, well, it's 4.30, fellas, we've got our anchor. You know, we're halfway to China, but we've got to put the anchor down. So, uh, <laughs> and then again, remember, if we put the anchor down at 4.30 in the afternoon, we've got to pull it up again at midnight because the water's that deep. So we don't get in this anchoring mode. We just keep, we just keep moving. Now, if you're single-handing by yourself there, there's obviously a period of danger. You're going to be asleep. No one is going to be in command. What you can do to alleviate or make this a little safer would be to sleep during the day when you are obvious to other shipping and then stay awake at night. And a lot of single-handers develop that technique. Trying to get into like a 20-minute catnap scenario will eventually lead you into fairly severe hallucinations. 
Mm. And you really believe the little green men you're talking to <laughs> are actually on board. But <laughs> <laughs> with a crew like with three of us, I mean, you never get easily. No money joking. With the three, three of us, you're going to get, say, I mean, an easy watch is two on, two hours on, and four hours off. Mm-hmm. And that's four times a day. So you've got 16 hours off that you can goof around with, preferably go to sleep. That makes, I mean, that's a system that, that really works. There's always someone at the helm, I mean, 24 hours a day, there's always someone there. So the boat is in, you know, the boat is, is, is in a very safe condition. But the old adage, if you don't have to stand, sit down. If you don't have to sit down, lay down. And if you don't have to be awake, go to sleep, really applies. Well, Alan, we have enough time just for one more question. Uh, how do you know where you are on the ocean, uh, where your location is? Sure. Well, you know, these days it's, it's pretty easy. Most people rely on a GPS system, a geographic positioning system. They get signals from satellites that tells them exactly where they are. And there are even systems where those GPS positions are automatically um, plotted onto electronic charts. But back in the 1980s, when uh, when these stories take place, GPS was just being developed, and it wasn't a reliable system, and also it was very expensive. Hardly anyone had them. So what we had to do was rely on methods that were used by the old-time sailors. We had the sextant and the chronometer, you know, things that have been used for centuries. Um, and with experience, you could plot your position within a half a mile or less anywhere in the world, anywhere on the ocean in the world. And with practice, you, you soon figured out that when you took a, a sextant sight of the sun or the moon or a star, you could tell if it was a good position or not or whether you had to take another sighting. The trouble with electronics is that you don't have a sense of whether it's right or not. Um, and you soon learn, uh, as a sailor, that you can't take anything for granted. So, for example, some of the charts in the South Pacific were mapped by the British Navy in the 1800s. And as good as they were... <laughs> They can show some islands a half a mile out of position, and I know where some of those are. So it doesn't matter if your GPS can locate you within a foot of where you're supposed to be. If you aren't paying attention, you could end up on a reef. So the uh, the the lesson is that even today, um, you have to use your, your common sense. Peter, why don't you tell us how to get your book? Okay. Probably, I think it's in Barnes & Noble, of the big bookstore. If they don't have it, just ask for it. They'll order it in. You can get it on Amazon.com or BarnesandNoble.com. You can get it in a paperback or a hard copy, or you can get it uh, electronically. So there's three different ways to get it. Probably Amazon.com most people are familiar with, and I guess most people in the U.S. would know Barnes & Noble. So they're probably the best ways to get it. The title of the book is Beer in the Bilges, and the authors and the great sailors, Alan Borum, Peter Jinks, and Bob Rossiter, thank you so much for sharing your journey and your book with us on iUniverse Radio. Thanks, Steve. Yeah, fa- thank you. Great. Yeah, thanks, Steve. Thanks. Good to talk to you, mate. Cheers now. iUniverse Radio is brought to you by iUniverse, the leading book marketing, editorial services, and supported self-publishing company iUniverse Radio is produced by TogiNet Radio. Radio with a cutting edge.